Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. Welcome to our webinar, Is it the Destiny of Blockchain to Become the Open Infrastructure? We tend to think of blockchain as a system for recording information, database technology, if you like. We tend not to think of it as a general purpose technology like electricity or the road network, or indeed as an infrastructure. But both general purpose technologies and infrastructures are not only open to all comers, but provide common means to multiple ends. The electricity network, for example, provides light and transport. It powers machines, including computers and the internet, and indeed it mines bitcoins. Could blockchain be like that? Could blockchain be not what we thought it was, a distributed trustless ledger, not just another piece of software or another database, but actually a framework on which we build new and undreamt of possibilities? Could that be what blockchain is becoming or must become? To help us decide, I'm joined by five people who've been thinking about this question for much longer than I have. Martin Hargreaves is Chief Product Officer at Quant Network, creators of the Overlay Blockchain Operating System Overledger that makes blockchain protocols and traditional systems interoperable. Amrit Kumar is co-founder of Zilliqa Capital and chairman of Binary Labs, which promises to make blockchain, and I like this phrase, boring, dependable, and fit for business. Claudio Calderon is strategic business project manager at DCV, the Chilean CSD, which is building a blockchain infrastructure for the fixed income market and a member of a consortium that is developing a blockchain ecosystem. Sarah Phelan is Senior Product Manager at Infura, part of Consensus, which supplies APIs and developer tools to accelerate progress in the creation of a Web 3.0 open and decentralized infrastructure. Eve Messi is Head Tutor at the Side Business School at the University of Oxford with a background in blockchain engineering. In addition to our panelists, we do, of course, also have you, our audience. We want your questions. We want your comments. So send them. Keep sending them via the Q&A functionality at the bottom of your Zoom screens. Rest assured, we won't save them all up to the end, but address them as we go along. So you will be, if you choose to be, an integral part of this discussion right from the start. And I speak for all six of us when I say we'll be very disappointed if you don't take that opportunity. Now, I'd like to begin, uh, Martin, with you. Is it plausible to think of blockchain as a general purpose technology like the electricity network or the internal combustion engine could be applied to multiple uses and has the potential to totally transform our economy and our society or is it just another software or database tech it's definitely sensible to think of that as a possibility so there's a number of projects that are heading in that direction um, across multiple continents um, and they are looking at creating basically foundational infrastructures um, for countries, regions, um, states of countries in some areas. And some of those are kind of um, government derived. So they're providing citizen services. Um, some of them are commercial. Um, and then some of them are kind of operated by NGOs. And there's quite a lot of experimentation in the form of that. So in Europe, there's there's EBSI, which government agencies from all of the, the EU countries can join. Um, they have a lot of interoperability there, and they've been they've been working on that for some time. Um, in South America, Lackchain um, is a little bit more ambitious than that. So they have um, 12 countries and a very well-developed model in terms of their membership, which I think we'll talk about later, how, how that kind of thing works. Um, 
Uh, and they've got a, a wide variety of different projects that are going on there. And some of those are governmental, some of them are citizen services, some of them are commercial. Um, that for me is probably the best example of what can be done with that. They've just gone like there. Uh, obviously, China has their blockchain services network, which is um, linked city to city. So they have city nodes there and service services based around cities. Um, plus, there's quite a lot of um, commercial and vertical market type blockchains. So um, different consortium type use cases, supply chains, um, transportation, those sorts of things. There's a number of not very interoperable, but covering the constituency that, that they're interested. So I think the difference really between blockchain and a traditional database is that it, it maps onto the real world interests of different groups. So whether that's a region of countries that have aligned interests or whether it's a number of companies that have aligned interests, it, it maps onto that as a technology layer. And then there's kind of governance uh, and legal and, and all of the other things you need to make that sort of stuff work. So it's, it, it is potentially quite a foundational layer in terms of bringing together these kinds of um, entities. And when you start building things on that, um, that becomes very, very sticky. So if you start to move things like citizen ID services for a bunch of countries onto a, a chain, that makes a lot of things really easy. So a lot of the point of this is, is um, taking cost and taking effort um, out of what are quite difficult processes today. Um, and as well as innovation into kind of completely new processes, um, which I think we'll talk about later. If, if I may add to, to, to what Martin just said. <laughs> I think you probably should. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I mean, there are other aspects of this as well. For example, if you look at the DGEN side of things, where people are, uh, and developer, developers are building applications that can either stand on their own. For example, you could have a marketplace where you can trade, let's say, assets. And these applications are sometimes also composed with other, other applications as well. And that's the mm -hmm. kind of beauty of this openness um, that uh, you know, open APIs in the early days uh, tried, to, tried to achieve. So you're seeing these applications, not just sitting on their own, but actually interacting with them on a daily basis. Yeah. And that's very powerful. So um, that's, that's one point that I want to add. The second thing is, uh, you know, when, when Ethereum, uh, particularly when it came in, this idea was that, or the vision was that we would be able to build a single layer where you could put all applications in one place. So one single tech stack where you could put all applications in one place. Well, that has played out uh, in some uh, decent way for us, but there are also this other philosophy that has come into play, which kind of plays with what uh, Martin was hinting at, that there are also cases where people are saying, look, we can also build application specific chain of some sort. So you, know, you have this uh, applications, uh, you know, as Cosmos SDK, for example, where it allows any developer to basically spin up a chain and put that application mm -hmm. on that chain. And that way you have a block space, you have this resource that is dedicated for your specific application. So it has, it has both models, the model where you have a complete sovereignty of your application sitting on a certain tech stack. And then another model where you have applications basically interacting with each other um, if and when they need. Yeah, I think that's a great point because that, that, the, that writing applications then making them available as a service to the network. Um, you see that with EBSI and Blackchain and a bunch of these things, particularly digital identity and, and increasingly payment applications um, then become services that can be consumed by other applications on there. And that, I think, that multiplies the power of that as an infrastructure. So if you, as a, if you want an application developer or a corporate, if you connect to that and all of those services are already there, um, that is a, a massive accelerator to, to actually delivering something new. Yeah. 
Um, uh, hello, Martin. I'm sorry I disappeared there. I hope you can hear me now. Um, I'm afraid my video isn't functioning, so you're going to have to hear me as a disembodied voice throughout this uh, throughout this webinar. Um, uh, I obviously missed something of what you were saying there, but um, um, what I would have done is go straight to Sarah and ask her about uh, about Ethereum. You may have been there already while I was uh, having my leave of absence, but if you didn't, um, I'd love, Sarah, you to address the question, is Ethereum uh, actually an infrastructure and it's open to anybody? People can, through composability, put together all sorts of products and services using uh, the Ethereum protocol. Yeah, it's a very interesting question um, and sort of to build on to Martin and, and Amrit's points um, from before, which unfortunately you missed, Dominic. Um, I think when it comes to a general purpose technology, it's my view is it's actually too early to say, but definitely has a lot of the potentials around that and around the organizational sense of whether it would become a, a general purpose technology. I think what we've seen so far, and I speak from the, the public blockchain space as opposed to an enterprise, although I have spent four years in enterprise, so sort of get a sense of, of both. Um, I don't, I mean, to your specific question, just touching a little bit there on my views of general purpose technologies, but to your question around is Ethereum an infrastructure, I would say there's nuance to that. No, it's a protocol. But there are very many different companies around, such as ourselves and, you know, exchanges and, and other um, API providers and, and node operators that, that actually are the infrastructure parts of this. So um, the interesting part about something like Ethereum is you have all of these different nodes connected in various different parts of the world that are running software on them that will execute on this protocol. So it's kind of a little bit nuanced in that sense. But I think from a, a high level you know, academically, I think there is there is some merit to the argument that Ethereum or you know other blockchains are an infrastructure in in themselves. Claudio, yeah, uh, I, you were I about, to, about to say something. Go ahead. Yeah, adding to the, to or already has said, uh, I, I think the different elements that compose this uh, new technology. Uh, like the peer-to-peer -peer technology, the crypto that, that that allows to to link block, blocks of transaction in a reliable, reliable and secure manner, uh, providing mutability, um, the incentives uh, to participate with prices on the public networks, uh, allows this uh, allowing uh, to, to solve uh, third-party trust problems. I think this technology clearly offers the opportunity to become a huge enabler to new business models that can transform the current landscape. And also, if you, you see the statistics, uh, for example, the, the, the ISA study, the, the recent uh, ISA study, DLT in the real world, uh, where more than for, uh, uh, 100 organizations participating, you, you can see the increasing in interest and importance to these organizations this, uh, about this technology, the the use cases uh, are doubled uh, against compared compared against the last year, and many organizations are moving from just the POCs to MVPs. I I, I think it has the potential to 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 become a huge enabler. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what I'll add to that is that obviously blockchain technology it's it's a commercial technology as well. It's it's a technology of agreement. Right. Um, we can all remember a time when the Internet was getting adopted and it was still uncertain that we can have online transactions that have anything to do with money safely. So blockchain is technology of trust. 
the reason why we have corporations is because we've evolved to such a way that organizations in a traditional corporate way was the best way to process information, signatures and agreements at scale. Blockchain is flattening that organization and is creating um, very, very incredible business models, essentially, that essentially don't have to follow the usual path, the traditional path and traditional models that we, we typically learn at business school. I think the last part that I'll add to this as well is that blockchain is making the metaverse possible, right? Let's not forget that if we're creating a technology of trust, if we're making online, techno online interactions um, something that can be immutable, witnessed by everyone and true for the rest of time, things like the metaverse became, you know, become very, very uh, tangible today. And I think the best example we have of that is JP Morgan obviously opening its first uh, bank branch in the metaverse, right? To, to cement that fact that blockchain is essentially making trust cheaper, faster, and available simply as an infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks for that, Eve. Uh, Amrit, can I ask you a, uh, what might seem a blindingly obvious question, which is, um, if blockchain is to become a kind of infrastructure, um, is it not constrained by its problems with speed and scalability? Just purely as a technology, is it not too slow and not scalable enough? Right. So obviously, you know, we have seen um, since the birth of Bitcoin and Ethereum, we have seen some of the challenges that uh, these platforms have faced. Um, if you go back in 2017, every single time Ethereum handled an ICO, basically the underlying platform became unusable for many other users. But I think we are making progress in terms of technology. You know, we are we have realized the, the, the problems that the underlying blockchains face and there are solutions out there today where um, you know, we have separated, for example, the execution component and the consensus component of blockchains. And some of these are actually you know, delivering scalability, which is you know, orders of magnitude higher than what uh, the initial platforms like Ethereum 1.0 and, and Bitcoin used to offer. So yes, the short answer is yes. Uh, there are certain limitations that we still have to overcome, but I think we are heading in the right direction with some of the new technologies and ideas actually being implemented and being used today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. Uh, some use cases require in, in improvement on these features, but, uh, but what we already have is, is useful to various uh, use cases such as traceability, provenance, and in, if, if uh, these scalability uh, issues are, are improved, pro probably, and, and, and I think undoubtedly, uh, and, uh, new use cases will be unlocked. Yeah. Did you want to say something, Eve? Or you yes, I was going to add, I mean, and, and also this matter of scalability uh, and performance, it's changing, right? We have blockchains such as Solana, we have blockchains such as Definity, we have, we have all sorts of blockchains that are appearing to meet all sorts of business cases, just like we have many types of web pages to support all sorts of businesses. It wasn't clear when the internet was being adopted um, 20, 25 years ago that you would need trillions of web pages. It seemed like maybe there were about 17 that were good ones. So I think we have the same thing happening with types of blockchains, types of consensus, and that's because we're calibrating the rate at which we agree depending on the business context. So the blockchain is turn out, turning out to be a very multifold technology and the issue of scalability really depends on the blockchain that you choose. And obviously there's content on that available in the course as well. Now if we're getting um, lots of different samples of, of blockchain, they also need to interoperate, uh, don't they? So interoperability between these various blockchains is going to be pretty, pretty 
crucial. And yet we've got all these basically incompatible protocols proliferating now. Is that not going to be a block on the development of blockchain as an infrastructure? I don't believe that it's going to be a block. I mean, I've personally worked on a project called Peggy, which was essentially bridging the Cosmos chain and the Ethereum blockchain to make a number of capital market use cases possible in between these two um, these two crypto economies. Uh, bridging is tricky. Bridging is still is in early years. Uh, if you've heard of something called a wormhole hack this year, which was it was about two months ago or one month ago, $385 million stolen by someone hacking a bridge between chains. These things still happen. But you also have things like Definity, where they've essentially not had to use bridges to make two blockchains interoperate, creating one more new way for a multi-chain set of business models to emerge, right? So you can now have Bitcoin on Definity without a bridge, for example. So it's not such a challenge, but it's truth be told, it's always best to stay within the same ecosystem, better if it's a huge one. But I think the rest of the venture capital industry when it comes to blockchain is investing on a multi-chain future and a number of companies and protocols like ThorChain, for example, T-H-O-R chain, um, are natively multi-chain and there are infrastructure that are also being used. Um, I, I'd be interested to know what, what you think, Martin, about the question of interoperability. But before you would address that, perhaps yes. I could ask, ask Sarah for her, her views on this first. Um, I think we're agreeing interoperability is pretty crucial here. Um, is the answer to that going to be some sort of standard, like a SWIFT standard? And are there signs that those are being developed? Um, that's a that is a good question. I think there's you know there's always the issue with standards that if you try and create a standard, you end up instead of fourteen different ways of doing it, fifteen different ways of doing it. Um, so I think it's very early days. I mean, as Eve mentioned, there's there's Peggy and um, I think there's IBC as well, and I think Ripple were working on one um, IPL. I could be getting the acronym wrong there. Um, but yeah, I mean, from a public space as well, we're definitely seeing a trend to move into the multi-chain world. I think once people start to understand these protocols and the trade-offs between different types of technology and the, the business case and the use case in question, um, you certainly see the need for different types of chains that are suitable for different types of use case. Um, and, you know, we've been talking about bridging and different um, standards that work together as well. I think the, the very important thing to keep in mind there is the trade-off, whether it's security or speed or centralization versus um, you know, uh, security and trust. Those things are very important to keep in mind. So you know, some kind of way of being able to evaluate these frameworks that come along, I think will be really important going forward. Mm-hmm. Martin. Um, yes, so I think it is. I mean, obviously, that's that's one one of the things we do at Quant. So the, I mean, a lot of the larger blockchain projects assume they will be the only one. So Ethereum does it. Um, Hyperledger definitely does it. R three two to an extent. And so when they talk about interoperability, they usually mean instances of their blockchain or a compatible one that was designed with it. Um, so we, I mean, we're kind of looking at the enterprise space if you are a company that wants to connect to a very variety of different blockchains you are going to have to get engineers for all of those things um and likewise the the bridging at the blockchain level is is good but as eve hinted it is technically complex um and there is a, it's very difficult to find engineers so um we and a couple of other projects and and products out there take a slightly different approach which is to put a gateway in front of the blockchain so 
two blockchains can talk to each other through their gateways, but also talk to legacy applications and traditional applications through that, and then tend to surface the blockchain functionality through an API. So that becomes more consumable for higher level applications. Um, and you know we can connect pretty much any blockchain to any blockchain that way. It's not the same as a bridge, um, but also it doesn't have the same attack surface that a bridge does. As yeah, you mentioned, there are hacks on the Ethereum mainnet pretty much weekly. It's not doing the industry any favors um, from a reputational point of view. So yeah, from from um, from my point of view, it's it is it's critical to scaling, right? So everyone, it's. The industry looks like kind of the early days, days of mini computers or the early days of databases where everybody's got their own proprietary stack and system and there's nothing's common. And, you know, we will need ways for all of these things to talk to each other. Um, we will probably converge on standard. I agree with Sarah, it's early days on standards. So we're involved in a number of those with ISO and with IETF. I know ITU, pretty much everyone is working on a blockchain standard. Um, and it's probably only a matter of time till we have a standard for standards for blockchains. Um, so, yeah, we, I mean, it, it's super important. It is, it's a partially solved thing at the moment. It's as with kind of the scaling, it, it's an early market um, and there's continuous work going on. So I, um, we will see where it pans out, but certainly um, Many blockchain operators are concerned with interoperability with other folks that are in their in their area, um, and there's there's a, a number of different competing solutions and models for solutions at the moment. So yeah, it's. Uh, Martin, it, it, what, what what's what's the downside of your gateway model? Um, if you are very into a particular ecosystem, so all of your applications are on Ethereum, you live on Ethereum, most things happen on Ethereum and you're Ethereum native, it will be, um, there's less utility, right? So if you need to go from there to a Hyperledger network, um, you're going to sacrifice functionality on the way through. The Hyperledger folks will, will need to redo it. So what we try to do is standardize some of that functionality, make it available for all of those networks, and then and then surface that um, directly. Um, in terms of the the advantage of the other techniques, or kind of the bridges and wormholes and, and those sorts of things, they don't involve any other infrastructure. Is is primarily the thing. So you can write it to one blockchain, and then unattended, it will go and do what it needs to on other blockchains. Um, rather than having gateways in between. So there's no control points between it. It's fully automated between the blockchains. Now, we've had an interesting question from Lee Sager here. I can't answer it. I hope one of you can. It's how do you rate uh, level zero solutions like Polkadot uh, for bridging? Amrit, you... Yeah, sure. So Polkadot... Yeah, so you know, as I said earlier, you know, there's this kind of two philosophies uh, today in the in the blockchain world. One is where you could say, uh, we are going to build a single platform on which all the you know applications will reside. So basically, you have a resource which is the block space, and you will have all these applications which will share the same block space, right? And that's kind of the Ethereum model. The other model is uh, is where people believe that no, you, it's very difficult to build a single you know chain on which all the applications will reside because you know you can imagine an application which is extremely popular and it might want more block space while that block space you know, is basically consumed by other less popular applications. And therefore this idea of sort of uh, sovereign chains came into play, sovereign app chains, where like Polkadot or, or Cosmos, where if you are a user, if you're an app developer and you'd like to see your app sitting on its own dedicated block space, then you could do that through Polkadot or, or Cosmos. 
there's a sort of different uh, difference between how the security gets transferred across the different chains in app chains. But the answer is yes, you could use some of these uh, solutions to scale as well. And then um, if you think, if you talk about sort of interoperability, there are also different sort of ways in which you interoperate across, let's say, a very traditional generic universal chain like Ethereum. But most of the interoperability today between, let's say, Ethereum and other similar you know, generic chains is through bridges. And those bridges are mostly, I would say, around tokens. So you take one token from one chain and you move that token to another chain. That's basically what you do through these bridges. And the idea through IBC or some of the other protocols is that can you actually do more than that? So imagine, for example, a user who's sitting on a, uh, who has assets on a single chain and he sees that, okay, if I put this assets to work on a different chain, then I might be able to generate returns on my, on my, on my assets. But he doesn't want to move all these assets from one chain to the other. So he wants all of that to happen in the background, in the behind the scenes. And the only thing that a user wants to do is be, be able to click and he says, okay, here's my asset, put this asset to work. And the backend infrastructure should be able to handle everything behind the scenes for the user. Mm -hmm. I think there are some solutions that are being built today, but they're not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. So all the bridges today are very primitive in that sense, if you see what I mean, you know, basically. I think it's, um, so Amrit, I think it's also worth adding the concept of wrapped tokens across networks, right? Because you don't have to bridge. You can have an instance of a particular network's coin on another instance, another chain, as long as that's obviously an asset that's backed by a one-to-one -one collateral. And uh, I guess it's not the time to talk about stable coins. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not the time to talk about that. But it is the time, I think, perhaps to talk about, um, we've talked quite technically there. Maybe it's time to talk about, go back to the to the essence of this, which is, basically blockchain as a as if you like as a as a social technology um you know it's 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 not like a software application it's not offering services it's just this immutable ledger of these transactions which you can change by by the consensus uh mechanism um so it does in in, in an economy which is increasingly driven by by data by information um by sort of, it's a kind of legalized financialized bureaucratized economy if you like uh, which is driven by exchanges of of, of information in, in digital form. So uh, I wonder whether we agree that it has this power um, to totally reinvent the foundations on which our, our economy and our society is built. And to that end, um, Andrea Tranquilini has, has made a comment, which is that, which is that um, DLT brings regulatory ambitions to the next level because it represents an opportunity if one wants to take it to transform markets, introduce more transparency, lower risk, and reduce uh, intermediation. That's obviously a kind of financial services perspective on this. Um, but if we look beyond that, do we, do, we, do we think that this is actually not just a digital technology, but actually a very, very powerful social technology capable of dissolving the ways that we that we do things now. And Sarah, it's a bit of a philosophical question, but um, I, I, I just want to know what you think. And then I'd like Claudia to chip in, perhaps with some experience from the from the LAC chain experiment in Latin America. But Sarah, give us a philosophical answer to my philosophical question. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, this was the, the ethos really that brought, brought blockchains into play and in particular kind of brought together a nexus of existing technologies and kind of layered a business model over it with incentivization. Um, and that, I think, conceptually is very, very powerful because it opens the doors to have this kind of 
sovereign identity, which, you know, side note, we're very far away from. Um, but theoretically, you could have ownership over your data rather than Facebook owning it, Google owning it, Uber owning it, those kind of things. Sorry to bring out the old innovation trope there. Um, mm -hmm. Nothing wrong yeah, with that. It, it's, it is an important part of the of the change here is from these large corporations controlling your data to you as a consumer controlling your data and your identity. That is that is a, a dissolution of, of one of the foundations of our economy, I think. Yeah, for sure. For uh, for Web 2.0, where everything kind of moved into these centralized silos where uh, personal data is held. Um, but the reward mechanism that, that kind of was brought about by the propagation of these networks is, is very interesting and it kind of translates well. And there's a couple of projects out there already, like the Brave browser and um, various sort of blogging um, sites where you can actually uh, receive these micropayments for whether somebody reads your article or whether you give time to be advertised to online, which, of course, we all do for free nowadays. Um, but those kind of very small changes, I think, in mindset for people that they they're not the product anymore. They can actually monetize their own way of doing things. And, and this kind of concept of of data labor, which we all participate in unwillingly sometimes in uh, Web 2. The idea with Web 3 is to moving towards decentralizing that. And I do certainly speak from a non-enterprise perspective here. And I know that that's the audience's is very much tuned to enterprise. But I think that, you know, the point that was made before about the um, the kind of uh, the changing infrastructure across all the markets. So I do have uh, experience in enterprise blockchain and also traditional finance too, clearing and settlement, you know, front end, um, uh, sort of front of house and that kind of thing. And the trading platforms, you kind of just see this collapse in between the trade and the settlement. And that as we know, the infrastructure in between all of those two points of a trade is huge at the moment. So collapsing those into effectively one complete transaction, if that takes 10 minutes, well, it's, you know, it's darn sight better than today. Mm -hmm. Claudio, um, you, you uh, as we said at the outset, you know, the, the CSD you work for in Chile is, is building a, a fixed income um, you know, bond market infrastructure, but you're also a member of this um, blockchain consortium that's developing a, a, a national ecosystem. Are the the companies which are supporting that um, that ecosystem project thinking to themselves, well, this is a, this is a cheaper, better, easier way of, of of building some new products and services on a blockchain than we could do if we had to fund it ourselves? Or are they actually thinking we are now part of a massive transformation in in the the, the Chilean economy? We're moving away from this sort of old corporate model. Where large companies control all the capital to this, you know, ownership economy where everyone has a stake in the system. We're moving from that intermediated financial system to the peer-to-peer -peer system. Uh, we're moving from what Sarah and I just talked about, which is away from you know Facebook and Google and Microsoft controlling your data to one in which you control your own data and indeed use it to prove your identity. What's the thinking of the of the companies? Do they feel they're part of a revolution or just a normal business transaction? I think that we are in the, in the, in the middle of, of that. Uh, blockchain allows us to, to improve our current process of the each ones, uh, to, to have a, a, a better uh, flow of the uh, securities each ones. And we, we, saw, we, we see blockchain as an opportunity to, to solve uh, and to improve the, the, that process. Uh, although, all, 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 we, all, all, we all know that blockchain allows you to handle your 
own uh, positions, your own uh, balances. Uh, in, in the traditional uh, and in, in the financial market, you need to, to have you, you need to have a, a third party to act as a trusted uh, to, to handle the, the, the single truth. So uh, prob probably on, on this step, uh, we are handling uh, blockchain as uh, an enable to improve our process. And in the future, we can move to the next step that is uh, give access to the owners to move their own positions. And how enthusiastic are the members of your of your ecosystem um, about this uh, this Slack Chain Alliance, this this project led by the Inter American Development Bank to provide a secure, open, uh, transparent, zero fee public permission blockchain network for Latin America and the, and the Caribbean. Do they see that as a great opportunity? Are they, are they willing to support it as it grows? Well, uh, currently we are not engaged with the LAC Chain Alliance. Uh, I think blockchain 3.0 uh, that uh, focuses on creating solutions, solutions for services and industries outside of the worlds of finance. And that's where uh, initiatives like Latin uh, can uh, can improve and, and as they mentioned they, they, they work on financial in inclusion sovereign identity traceability issues and and I, I, I uh, my experience or or what I have seen on about their development is, is that they promote the digital economy through the development of centralized uh, uh, registration uh, technologies or, or blockchain. They provide an, an infrastructure to accelerate innovation through, uh, and that allows uh, to minimize the time to market uh, on, a, on a DLT service. Mm -hmm. Martin, um, at, at the outset, you were able to reel off a list of, of projects which um, you saw as, as kind of putative uh, blockchain infrastructures of which the LAC chain was one. I myself have a little list of them here, um, Elastria in Spain and the EBSI project, which I think you mentioned in, in Europe. But I also think of, of ASX in Australia making its its uh, blockchain technology available to third parties. I think of the another CSD, not just DCV in Chile, but uh, KDPW in, in Poland, also looking to build a blockchain uh, infrastructure for the, for the capital markets. Um, are, are these, um, just to sort of try and, get to the bottom of this um are these just ways for people to to use blockchain which are a bit cheaper than doing it yourself or are we actually seeing something very fundamental shifting it's close it's certainly closer to the second i would say there are some commercial ones so so china's blockchain service network the international version of that is very much just a commercial platform um, more or less a, a blockchain as a service um, the things with some of these networks is they are a lot of them are experiments but they're experiments in governance as well so we talked about lack chain lack chain is not a public network but it's also not a private network um, it's a public permissioned network so anybody can get a node on there um, then they have to sign up to a contract and the contracts have been translated into the legals for all the countries they support and they they then have legal liability for their transactions and their users so users can still be anonymous to the network but they have to be known by someone who's liable 
Um, that is very similar to the social structures we have today in the way that, that you know, our banks and payment systems work. So a lot of things translate directly onto there. EBSI, on the other hand, is only available to government agencies. So EBSI services from the kind of the data sharing across that will be available to citizens through applications they, uh, those agencies write. But if you're a corporate or you're a, an individual, you can't join that network. Um, so they're operating at kind of different levels. Um, and I think it's, it's still very early to say which of those is likely to be um, either the most successful or the most successful for the context that they're in. Um, as, as Claudia said, one of the, one of the key uh, drivers for blockchain is around economic development, uh, financial inclusion, digital inclusion, and that's um, a really key driver for them. They've got kind of um, 60 to 80 different institutions of different sizes, including a lot of government agencies across the whole region, and they're, 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 that's what most of their use cases are around. Um, EBSI is more around digital ID um, and a variety of, of kind of citizen services. And obviously the commercial ones, ASX, they are um, relating to the markets that they're in. So I think the governance models and how they're run um, is as much an area of experimentation as, as the technology. And in general, I think rather than undermining or revolutionizing um, how we do society, which certainly is uh, sorry, so definitely was one of the initial goals of the, of the public blockchains, I think it's a technology that, that can very quickly and effectively reflect um, changes that are happening. Um, so there's um, the, the backlash, the, the kind of the, the data labor against the concentration of wealth of the few large companies and the few individuals is well represented by what's happening on the, on the public blockchains. And that, some of that is filtering over into wider society. And I think will be reflected in the models that, that these um, emerging new blockchain infrastructures adopt. Well, if I may add, Dominic, just a quick note. Um, I think yeah. everything is not rosy either, to be honest. Um, I think if you look at um, kind of this DeFi revolution that people, at least in the public blockchain space, people were painting, that you know you would be able to access any financial application without requiring, you know, X, Y, Z, or let's say your KYC and whatnot. But if you look at the applications that have been built on those rails, uh, about ten percent or about twenty percent of that maximum, I would say is actually being used by people who are not financially included already. So if you look at the sort of demographics of people actually using DeFi, most of them, these people actually come from the very developed countries, uh, you know, whether it be Europe or America. And the number of people actually coming from countries like Bangladesh, Indonesia, and you know, those places where financial inclusion is, is a challenge, it's actually, you know, the person is actually quite low. So I think we have a really long way to sort of, you know, reach that mission or the goal that we started with. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's another aspect where I think uh, either we as a technologist or we as people doing and building these businesses around them, we are not doing the best job in some sense to attract the right people who actually need these technologies the most. For example, today in, in, in remote part, you know, villages in the Bangladesh, it's very hard to, let's say, you know, do micro lending, for example, it's very difficult. And the idea or at least the vision of initial DeFi was to be able to simplify that. Unfortunately, I don't think we are quite there yet. Mm. Now, Eve, uh, uh, Martin brought up the question of, of the governance of these blockchain infrastructures. And uh, uh, it's clear we're not going to end up here with one national blockchain infrastructure in every country, like one national roadwork or one national electricity grid. There's going to be, they're going to be sort of networks of networks, but they might 
hook up in ways which which create interesting infrastructural possibilities. But who should should govern those? Is it, are we talking governments or stock exchanges or telecoms companies? Well, it's it's a tricky one because obviously there's a tension. Um, anyone who's involved in regulated business and blockchain has this tension of needing something that is run by crowds, right? Essentially crowd, um, the wisdom of crowds essentially is what governs uh, blockchain markets today. It's meant to be fairly anarchical, no central, no central point of failure and no central point of decision. Um, but the question of standards, I think it's best to understand the blockchain world as a wild west where standards merge from repeated custom that's followed. So a company will release tokens for free occasionally after having had an, an initial token offering um, in order to encourage and bootstrap access to its services. That's a custom that's emerging in the blockchain space. And these standards are emerging from the customs in, in blockchain systems, in blockchain, blockchain algorithms, and it's in the code as well. Who should govern those? It should be the token holders. The regulators should be active participants. And obviously any infrastructure providers like miners, validators will have a say that will obviously have to be listened to in every situation. But these are the ones running and governing the blockchain today. The token holders, the infrastructure um, providers in terms of the hardware, and obviously the people who are the most engaged with the protocol and have a say in code, maybe not being legal um, to operate, right? According to regulated laws. Could there be a, an argument for a government or governments to agree a set of standards? Um, I don't know, best practices, maybe even technical standards, which blockchains within their remit have to sign up to, which makes it possible for them to, to interoperate? Or does that blow up the whole dream of a decentralized? I think you can have both. I think the, the role of governments in the world of permissionless blockchain is very much one of an entity that should be listened to. Um, but but obviously listening to governments, unfortunately, is not, it's, it's fairly optional, right, for, for blockchains such as Bitcoin. But for more regulated chains, for more centralized chains, there's absolutely a question of listening to governments. And the UK has done an incredible job, right, as of late, of engaging, giving some opinions on the safety of custody, of the safety of token sales, uh, and on distribution of token products to retail users who don't know any better. So I think governments show the way, but blockchain token holders and infrastructure providers such as miners and validators will probably have more of a say in what actually happens with the advice of obviously governments that must be listened to. Mm -hmm. Sarah, you were smiling as I as I asked Eve that question. What were you smiling about? Was it an ironic smile or? I was a partial smile and partial grimace, if I'm honest, Dominic. Yeah. Um, I think that would be, it would be a very nice utopia if we were all across the globe living in environments where governments were pro-innovation and pro-openness and, and egalitarian in many ways, um, I think it's fair to say that we're not. Um, so I think the, the thought of having standards where governments would even, you know, impose certain technologies or, or technolo technological standards on various different projects, um, I mean, the only one that I can think of where that actually happened was open banking, where there was the standard APIs, um, which was obviously with a view to opening up um, banking and making it more competitive for uh, individuals and small businesses. Uh, and that's, I mean, I'm, I could be wrong, so someone jump in, but that's the only example I can think of where a technology or a, a standard has been um, kind of passed down from government to, to um, the, the creators of these things or the, the users of these things. And I'd also add on to that, um, well, I mean, 
to sort of finish to round off that point, I think when it comes to enterprise cases and uh, regulated markets, yes, absolutely, of course. Uh, but when it comes to the public space, it's it's not going to happen. It just won't happen. It's a case of a nine foot wall and a ten foot ladder. So um, I don't. I think you know to to um, echo what Eve said. I think the UK government has done a really good job of engaging and and with a view to kind of um, pro innovation, but obviously pro protection protection of retail investors too. Um, but not all governments have and not all regulatory bodies have been. And you can even see the sort of the contrast with the US. Um, it seems like it's kind of it's working against innovation, in, in my view. Uh, and that's, you know, very interesting. And it's sort of meant to be a sort of very pro-business country. But I think in many ways what their response to crypto has been has not been that. So you know, and there's various different responses across the across the world too. So that would be my view on uh, regulatory imposing standards or governments imposing standards. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested you bring up open banking, um, open data. I can see that, you know, there are 60 or 70 countries around the world now, I think at least who have open banking, open finance, and even open data initiatives in train. They're all running into different forms of headway. Um, but 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 we do have now standardized APIs and, and logically, if you push that logic to its extreme, it does undermine the, the, the control of the customer by large corporations in, in the long run. It does require customers to be proactive and it does indeed require those large corporations to be prepared to accommodate the, the, the standardized APIs and the changes which, which are being imposed upon them. And in some ways, I, you know, I, I sort of think of that as a, as a nascent infrastructure, uh, which will take a long time to to come to fruition, but it's part of this end state in which the customers are in control of their own data and of their own identity, and they use that as a lever to switch between um, between corporations. And, and it's that which changes the nature of capitalism. Because instead of consumers being fed products and services by companies, companies start having to respond to consumers. Yeah, for sure. And sorry to, um, you know, hog this, but I remember when the, the the API standards were being developed, of course, it wasn't just handed down by the UK government. It was it was done with the community of um, legacy banks and challenger banks. And you kind of see this David Goliath approach where the legacy banks will all, um, you know, to use a blockchain term, collude and try and push these specific standards or put these blockers in place or, you know, have these Uh, requirements that the challenger banks can't quite reach, that you don't end up with something pro-consumer, you end up with something that is pro-legacy. And this is where I think the public space and the enterprise space can kind of learn from each other and hopefully, you know, uh, theoretically kind of converge on something that is still, uh, you know, a way that small businesses and medium-sized businesses can create money and jobs, but also is good for the consumer too. Call me idealistic. Martin, you were nodding fiercely there as um, as Sarah was was saying this is pro pro legacy. Yes, and the the existing system of capital does have an immense power to slow things down and defend itself. Very much so, um, and you see that in the kind of the prior generations of payment systems as well. So, first the payments was kind of the, the predecessor of that. Went live in two thousand and seven with eleven banks, um, and had eleven banks for a very long time because there was there was high barriers. Um, to entry on that. Um, I think where 
um, blockchains and open banking are different um, from the traditional networks um, in some cases is that usually in the in kind of the traditional networks certainly in the, the domain that i'm from which is payments the the folks that are involved in the network they're actually operating stuff that have a stake are typically the folks that have a role in governing it governing it so if you if you were part of pass to payments you would have become a shareholder in it right so you have voting rights same with swift it's member owned um same with a lot of those networks um open banking they don't have quite the leverage that they used to um and in the blockchain world it's devolved to miners validators that sort of thing um i'm going to come back to Lightchain again because they are my favorite example they what they have actually is um there are fees to join and that also you get voting rights with that so it looks more like a traditional network and actually in the traditional networks the the folks that are involved in providing services that are connecting to the network generally do have a, a decent say in that as opposed to kind of um that moving out to come like token holders speculators miners who are you know, really in it to they don't really care about the service largely they care about making a return on the fact that the service exists um so again i think we're experimenting with governance models um and we may rediscover the reasons why some of our older governance models were in place in the first place um uh, by trial and error or we might come across some wholly new ones that work well um, as sarah said particularly sarah said in the consumer space it's very different because these networks have not really existed before um and there's a whole bunch of different drivers well and i'd like to come back in a minute to, to actually how we make this happen we're into our last sort of 10 or 15 minutes now but could we just before i do that could we dispose of a, a technical question here from enver abazovich in which he asks do operating systems play a big role in interoperability between blockchains and if so is there one that your companies prefer to develop on um uh, martin i don't know if you've got a thought on that but yeah i mean i'm happy to to have a view on that um, just okay. earlier as well uh, i think the operating system doesn't matter but if you're really in, in the philosophy of blockchain you will want to use a linux-based machine or an open source operating system-based machine and obviously if you're an enterprise user then it's usually best to look at things like red hat and obviously, um, you know, Azure, Microsoft Azure has some strong activity on blockchain specifically. Um, so it would be recommended. Perhaps Google um, is attempting to have a similar presence now, but I would say that they're falling short a little bit. So in terms of operating system, anything Linux-based would be ideal uh, for deployments. And in terms of your own development, Mac is usually preferable, frankly, to, to Windows environments from what I've seen as a developer, um, no matter how senior. <laughs> so I would say, yeah. Anything Linux-based would be best in every situation. Mm -hmm. uh, Amrit, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, or do you feel that uh, Eve's address? Well, I, agree, you know, I, agree with, I agree with Eve's. It's just that you know, developers who are building some of these public, uh, let's say, applications for or platforms, you know, they are developing on Linux systems. So uh, whatever they release, uh, whether it be libraries or whatnot, they are first and foremost are meant for Linux systems. So um, that also helps you, you know, you may wait at some, some time they do release uh, releases for Windows as well. But, uh, you know, you may have to wait for a longer time, you know, but priorities for most of these developers is always Linux. Mm -hmm. Okay, we, let's, let's use our last 10 minutes to, to ask ourselves how we can perhaps make this uh, dream of a blockchain infrastructure actually happen. Um, a few minutes ago, um, Sarah was, uh, and Martin were portraying a world in which, um, the consumer is is not sufficiently active. Uh, the legacy corporations are certainly active enough to slow down um, 
slow down adoption of blockchain. So if we were looking for the fastest route, the best way to accelerate adoption, is it to persist with our present system of hoping competition will do the job um, and the existing corporations will make interesting choices and consumers will help them make those interesting choices and somehow we'll end up in a blockchain, uh, decentralized, peer-to-peer economy just by the normal processes of the market? Or do we need some form of collaboration uh, throughout the economy between different, I don't know whether I'm talking about different banks, companies, consumer groups, I don't know what I'm talking about here, but some form of collaboration between people who genuinely want an innovative new system, which is best. Can we rely on competition or do we need um, to collaborate? Now, Claudio, I'm sure you're actually thinking about this question when you're when you're building your, your ecosystem in, in Latin America. Um, what's your thought on this? Can we rely on competitive forces in a marketplace or do we need, as in a way your, your project is showing, you need collaboration between the various forces to make something happen? Where does the balance fall in your experience? Uh, you're on. You're still on mute, Claudio. You need to unmute yourself. There sorry, you sorry, sorry. Don't worry. We'll well, do it. I, I think that technolo- technological changes and the growing needs of the market uh, with sophisticated products and new services um, requires agility and highest quality. So creating new ideas, products or market is a job that requires a lot of commitment and the adoption of this technology can't be achieved without collaborating. So we must encourage to build business applications solving shared problems with a win-win balance between competition and collaboration. Mm -hmm. It's it's a must. Now, what- Let's cite an example, Dominic. Um, You know, if you look at challenger banks in the UK, particularly Revolut, for example, um, these, they really set some, some examples on how to do certain things. For example, they were the first ones to introduce or actually, actually um, you know, add support for crypto assets. So, for example, initially you could go and buy Bitcoin, Ethereum and other assets. Now, that, for example, I've heard that or somewhere read that they are planning to build a custodial, a non-custodial wallet of their own. And then they are potentially planning to build an NFT marketplace of their own. Now, with these kind of changes, I think that really brings a kind of a stick model here, which encourages other uh, legacy banks to move forward as well. And now we are seeing that change as well. You know, in certain countries, at least in, in Asia, for example, in Singapore, um, there are banks which are openly you know, allowing uh, custody of, of assets, uh, crypto assets for institutional clients. So I think that, that, that some of these new participants in the ecosystem, whether it be challenger banks or you know, DeFi, you know, application itself, for example, some of these companies in the UK, like Aave, they applied for a license in, in, in the UK to, to operate certain, certain businesses. And you can see that convergence happening. So it's, it's also a model where some of the newer participants are pushing forward, and that is really sort of pushing also the legacy uh, institutions as well to make changes. Maybe not as fast as uh, the challenger ones, but at least they are making changes. Yeah, I think it's worth noting as well that the the actors that you know Emery just pointed the banks, challenger banks, um, and the blockchains. There are more industries jumping into this blockchain um, area. Don't forget the impact of the NFT wave during during our, our bullish months this past year alone, right? The past twelve months. So there, there are companies like gaming companies, automotive companies. There's a whole suite of enterprise use cases in addition beyond just DeFi that are also jumping in, and soon you'll have these as well, having a, a, 
something to say essentially about, for, for example, consumer safety when it comes to automotive blockchain use cases or transportation standards for aviation using blockchain, for example. Um, there's a lot more than just banks and developers in this, in this story. Mm-hmm. Now, our, our time is almost up, and I'd like to just get a final thought from each of you on, on the, the heart of the matter here, which is at the moment, we, as you say, Eve, we've got lots of companies jumping into blockchain, trying, in effect, to privatize the gains from doing something different, trying to make money for themselves. And in principle, nothing, not, nothing harmful about that. That's how the system works. But what if, what if we took an infrastructural view of blockchain and thought, well, actually, um, what we're going to do is provide a common means to many ends. There's going to be a genuine infrastructure, which lots of people can create value. There'll be this enormously beneficial social and economic spillover um, spillover effects. How, um, Sarah, I'd, I'd like you to address this first. How do we how do we make that happen? Can a bunch of innovators actually build a very low cost or even zero cost blockchain infrastructure? They so come on, you know, it's kind of where Ethereum comes from, if you like. So you're you're well placed to to answer it. Um, how can that 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 sort of dream which people had at the beginning be be sort of resurrected? Some of that ardor and passion which people had when they when we first started going down this path um, five six years ago. Can, is it powerful enough to start displacing existing infrastructures in securities markets? Yeah, I, I think so. In in um, you know, in short answer, longer answer, I, I won't go into too much now. Um, but I definitely think that you've seen this huge amount of innovation come up. And I think that the trends over the past, you know, five, six years before everything was kind of you know nascent or even non-existent. Um, you see the trends like NFTs has been mentioned a couple of times today. That's really gone into the mainstream. Um, and I think these times, these are the times when we can address things like scalability, when you start to see all these, these this usage um, from a technological perspective. But I think from a mindset perspective, I, I do think that the, the ideological ideas are still coming through. You know, the thought that people can uh, create their own art and sell it to people across the globe is, is very compelling for some artists. And I think as the technology expands and, uh, you know, uh, use cases like gaming and video streaming are, are then becoming possible, I think the same thing will happen. Um, there's always going to be a slight dilution in ideology when, when a number of competing different forces come in. Um, but the one thing I would say to enterprise is that keep an eye on what's going on in the public space and keep an eye on what the technological trends are, because if there is this kind of utopian merge or something where we do have this general, general purpose technology, almost to bring it full circle, we will need to interoperate. Mm-hmm. Claudia, a, a last thought from you on how we bring about this general purpose technology led infrastructure from which everybody in a society or economy can benefit. Can you recall the question? Um, it's my final question is, is how you think we can best achieve a, uh, a blockchain infrastructure, which is open to everybody at very low cost, so they can create lots of different products and services from which they derive value, but society and economy benefit as well. Sorry, I, I cannot hear you. You can't hear me. I'll, I'll ask the question again in a different way. The, the, the purpose of our discussion this afternoon is, is to work out whether blockchain is an infrastructure, and if it is, 
how to build one which is of maximum social and economic value. You've explained that collaboration is an important part of that. We've agreed competition is, is part of it as well. If I ask you the question, what's the next thing we should do to help to bring it about, what would you say? Well, blockchain itself is uh, it's a part of an infrastructure. Uh, in, in order to, 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 to move to the next steps, uh, we need to uh, have better interoperability, which is based on the standards, and also provide a, a set of, of uh, uh, capabilities in a, like the governance, which uh, ha, has to have the, the definition of the, the market that is engaging that blockchain in particular, and the principles that uh, governs that, the, the, that, that, uh, that blockchain, that consortium. And, and there are uh, things that need to be uh, governed uh, in, a, in, in, a, in a network, in a, in a consortium. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks, uh, Claudio. Now, Eve, you, you, you've heard um, Sarah talk about um, capitalizing on innovations which are clearly working and, and you know how to make them scalable and grow fast. You've heard Claudio say that we need standards to, 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 to provide the interoperability. We need also governance standards as well. These, these are concrete steps which can be taken towards the idea of building a blockchain infrastructure. What's your, what's your idea of, of a good next step to make this thing happen? I think the, the, the issue of, uh, or the promise of a multi-chain world and the standards that come from multi-chain interaction is going to be useful because it's going to make principles apply on more than just, in more than just one ecosystem. I'll give you an example. The ERC721 standard is the one behind what we call NFTs. It was an Ethereum proposal by the community that became reality and is now the rule really in the blockchain space. And once you interact with other networks, you see that you have the same Ethereum standards in other blockchains um, as well, right? So I think in, what would really be useful is if we have a, a thicker view of multi-chain interaction and to propagate basic governance principles across networks algorithmically. I know it's a techie answer, but um, you know, data standards, consensus standards, asset definition standards, um, going from one massively dominant network like Bitcoin or Ethereum, but then proliferating along with rules and methods to comply to regulation, propagating to other chains. So we need electronic digital tools to embed our real life customs and regulations into the code to the extent that we'll obviously have blockchain be in everyone's daily life legally. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Steve. Um, so Amit, Lots. You've heard all everyone else's ideas here. It's capitalizing innovations. Let's have governance standards. Let's have interoperability standards. And 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 the, from Eve, there a kind of technical, algorithmic um, type of of collaboration, which which we tend not to think of. We we tend to think it was a human activity. But actually, that that interaction, that iteration, does lead to, you know, reinforcing stuff that works, doesn't it? I mean, what's what's your what's your advice as to well, how I'm to make it happen? I would, I would like to give two advice. One is that I think we we as developers are building things for developers. So no matter what products you use today, 
you know, it's impossible to use some of these products unless you go and watch a one hour tutorial video by your favorite influencer. It's not as uh, seamless as downloading another app from a FinTech app, let's say, and a banking application from, a, from your app store. So I think we need to think from a user perspective a little bit more. And second thing, we have to be responsible. You know, uh, every other day we hear hacks happening left and right. And honestly, that pushes people away, that pushes users away, that pushes people who are thinking or enterprise thinking about adopting blockchains. And, you know, it gives hard time for them as well. So I think we should, you know, there's a tendency uh, among developers that, oh, here is an application that I built overnight and let's go and use it. I think we need to be slightly more responsible uh, when we push products into the wild for people to use. Mm -hmm. Martin, last word from you. It's a sort of thankless task, this, because four other people <laughs> have given us all their ideas already. But uh... No, that's absolutely fine. So I think um, there's, in terms of collaboration and competition, there's a definite, there's a balance between public sector and private sector here. So private sector, as you say, lots of money to be made, innovate very fast compared to government. Um, but for the sort of infrastructure that we're talking about, that is, you know, it sits alongside uh, railways, roads, that sort of thing, and it becomes kind of de facto business infrastructure. It's built into government, that sort of thing. That's what where people are potentially going, right? That's where EBSI are going. It's where China are going, um, Alastria to an extent. That needs input from government, not to build it, um, but potentially to sponsor it and certainly to use it, um, and. The other thing that we would need to do on those rails is build out well, two things, foundational services that make it useful to build on. So identity and payment primarily. Um, once you've got those, you've got citizens on there, they can identify themselves, they can pay for things, then you can start to move applications onto there, make them useful. And probably the final point on that is you have to find those useful um, applications. So there needs to be a really strong what's in it for me. As a consumer, there's going to be a level of friction. And to Amber's point, it's far too high at the moment, right? If you've ever tried using wallets and that sort of thing, it's not something you would get your grandmother to do. Um, so the compelling use cases for consumers, which are primarily around, you know, how can we make your life simpler? Because we can, right? If you've got digital identity, you can make an insurance claim with a button click rather than coming up with all of your documents, those sorts of things, because it can all be held securely on that blockchain. Those sorts of things really need to be start to be built out because that will, that will build uh, the demand side of it. Um, but I, I think it is the sorts of things that countries and societies will use as a basis of competition because it, it um, can act as a uh, certainly an accelerator and a multiplier for the level of innovation um, and the uh, efficiency of a lot of the processes in that economy. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Martin. Yeah. Some, some very useful, really useful thoughts. So, did, did you want to say one something, Claudio, before we go? We'll yeah, stop I, in a minute. I, I, I could like to add that increasing education on the different elements of uh, DLT, like the use cases, the, the, the benefits, and the risk, are vital, are, are, are really, really important uh, to turn. Uh, I, I think the, the, the companies that are, are adopting or experimenting with DLT technologies. Uh, to look uh, a way to share their experience. Uh, this yeah. will aid for a, a broader uh, industry uh, across, uh, adoption across the industry. Mm. Well, I, I can certainly vouch for that. Having spent two hours this morning trying to hire a car, both to prove who I was and to, and to pay for it, that there's certainly lots of scope <laughs> for improvement there. But I Absolutely. think we must, we must stop there. 
Um, I'd like to apologize for being being a blank and for disappearing at, uh, very briefly there, but it's been a very fascinating discussion. I'd like to thank our, our panelists, Martin Hargreaves from Quant Network, uh, Amrit Kumar from Zilliqa Capital and, and Binary Labs, Claudio um, Calderon from DCV, Sarah Feenan from Infura and Eve Messi from the Side Business School. I'd also like to thank you, the audience, for your, your questions and your comments. Uh, here at Future of Finance, our next webinar is two weeks away. Uh, I hope to be there in full colour, Thursday 9th of June, same time, same place, uh, 2 p.m. on Zoom. In it, we're going to be addressing the question, is the digital asset custody industry ready to grow up? By which we mean uh, being ready for institutional money and ready to facilitate the growth of the security token industry. And I hope that many of you will be able to join us then. But for now, it's goodbye from the six of us. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.